you from the uh, final verse of Romans 4 and then venture into Romans 5. In the final verse of Romans 4, Paul will tell us that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and that he was raised again for our justification. Now the way I take that is that him being delivered and him dying on the cross is what put away our sins and then when he was resurrected this was declared to be so though it was declared to be so for the elect family of God. Now uh, I'm in need of more information than that. I need to know that it is for me in particular that I'm part of that elect family of God and so in the next verse uh, he'll begin to talk about this part of it, how it is that we know it. Now some people will say that uh, I have misinterpreted that last verse of Romans chapter 4 that when it says he was raised for our justification that it merely means that he was raised to assure it, to guarantee it, that at some future date that we would be justified. I'll not complain of that very much because that's essentially or very nearly saying the same thing as uh, the other idea. Because let's suppose that you had a man uh, seated in jail under charges and uh, you wanted to guarantee his justification, there's only one way that you can do that. you got to convince the judge, irreversibly convince the judge he's an innocent man. Now you have guaranteed his justification. It may be that the judge has not yet declared this. We've not had the court session yet where... Uh, the judge has pronounced uh, the verdict of the case. But if you have convinced that judge, or if that judge has been convinced that the man is innocent, then you have guaranteed his justification. And uh, I'm going to uh, show you that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that proved that the judge was convinced. He was convinced of the righteousness of all his people. Now, uh, when we look at Christian opinion on this subject, there are about three major views. One is that we were under the wrath and condemnation of God until we chose to believe, and then we were exonerated and justified. There's another position that says we were under the wrath of God until we were moved to believe by the uh, Holy Spirit and then we were exonerated and justified. Then there's another position, and this is mine and the one of the old Baptist. We were under the wrath of God until Jesus died on the cross. Then God became reconciled to us and it is on that account that he moves us to believe. 
that he gives us a knowledge of Jesus and moves us to believe, that our believing is uh, a grace of God acquired by Jesus, a consequence of reconciliation, and that belief is the means by which we know that we are the recipients of, of this grace. All right, now as we move into Romans 5, we're going to see that idea, that last idea, all over the place. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the uh, question here is whether this peace is in God's mind or is it in our mind? And we're going to find as we continue to read that the peace he's talking about here is in our mind. God's mind was reconciled and set at peace when Jesus died. He's talking about peace in our mind. So, to give you an analogous case, let's suppose that uh, you're seated in jail and uh, you're potentially facing the electric chair but the great judge has seen evidence that has convinced him you're innocent. Maybe uh, he saw it while reading in his chambers. Maybe he was out fishing and saw how the facts fell together. Maybe he was mowing the grass and uh, the evidence came together for him. And in his mind, you're innocent and he plans to acquit you but we've not yet had court and uh, the verdict has not been announced you're still in jail and you got no peace of mind you see you're still thinking I may be toasting an electric chair in some time uh, how do we give you peace of mind well we've got to tell you about Jesus Christ and bring you to a belief in Jesus Christ this is what he's talking about. That we have peace with God in our own minds, though in God's mind, he was at peace before you were even born. All right, now we continue. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That through our believing on Jesus... We have benefits that are not deferred until death, but we are experiencing them even now. And uh, part of those are that we have hope not only of being justified, of being declared innocent, but we're going to see God and uh, we're going to participate in His glory. We will uh, be conformed to His image. Being innocent does not make you deserving of heaven. Uh, being innocent just means you've been delivered from hell. But Paul said that we have much more than this through Jesus Christ. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope that we are in such a triumphant and joyous state 
that we even find <coughs> victory in our tribulations and, and sufferings. And uh, if you'll ask, well, how do we glory in them? I think that a good definition of glory would be to be made like Jesus Christ. Can you think of a better definition than that? Uh, and the Bible teaches that if we've been made like him in the sufferings, and we've been made like him in our dedication to the Lord and things like this, then we will be made like him in resurrection and in glorification. So uh, even the sufferings are glorying in the sense that they're making us like Jesus Christ. All right, so he says, Our tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience. And uh, I'm thinking, let me see. I thought there was a note in the King James, but uh, evidently it's, it's not. But that word experience means proof. Patience worketh proof. That is, uh, when you in the midst of your trials settle down and uh, put your trust in the Lord and are waiting on God, then the proof will come. Now, I know that's not what your instinct tells you. Your instinct tells you that if I can get myself worked up in a frenzy over this, that at some point God will pity me, and then he will do the thing that I want. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches when you calm down and you put your trust in the Lord, then you'll get the thing that you've asked for. So, uh, patience worketh experience and experience hope. Our hopes are strengthened by the proof that God gives us. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. We feel God's love for us uh, by the Holy Spirit. And of course this moves us to love. Here's one a very strange thing that I know all of you have experienced. Uh, maybe you were going down I-55 during rush hour and your tire goes out. Now, this may not have ex- happened to you, but you can just put in a parallel experience. And you got big trouble. Then some good Samaritan pulls over and helps you get your tire changed and helps you get out of that dangerous situation. You just instinctively, when that happens, you just instinctively say, thank you, Lord. And at the same time, you instinctively say to the person, thank you, good Samaritan. Those two things happen at once, don't they? And uh, that's because your instinct is telling you something. That's the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. God's love down to us and then spreading from there to each other. All right, these things give us the assurances that our salvation is real. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died 
with the ungodly. Now, I want you to think about this and, and subsequent statements that he will make that are like this. When you were without strength, he died for you. Well, you weren't even born when he died for you. And then he died for some people who are already dead when he died for them. Uh, there were some people like Abraham that had believed on him and been a friend of God uh, even before Jesus died for them. So what does this mean when we were without strength that he died for us? Paul is here talking about where things happen in logic. Where in sequence of thought does the death of Jesus Christ become impactful in your life? Where does it become engaged in your life? All right. Now, uh, a lot of people would say uh, that the benefits of his death are way over here, but if you'll do this and do that, then you will procure the benefit. Uh, what is it you must do? Well, you must take some sort of friendly action towards God. Do this ritual, do that ritual, uh, respond to the altar call, something like that. And when, if you'll do that, then the benefits of his death will be transferred to you. That's the way in which things are ordered. But what I wanted to know is how does the Bible order them? And uh, I'm starting to get a hint as to the direction the Bible is headed. When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where his death came in. Not when we were uh, performing acts of religion or had been strengthened by the Holy Spirit. But it happened when we were without strength. That's where his death became of application and force to our lives. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right, now what's the difference between a righteous man and a good man? A righteous man is someone who has kept God's law. But a good man is someone who's been good to you. And uh, Paul says, you're probably not going to die for somebody just because they've been a, a, a deadly do-right. But now if they've been good to you, you might die for them. But Christ died for us when we were neither. All right, now he says, But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now this brings us back to the same question. I wasn't even born when Christ died for me. Some people had been born and were already dead when Christ died for them. What does he mean while we were yet sinners? He's telling you, where the death of Christ had its effect upon your life. You see, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, 
we should be saved from wrath through him. Because if his death could accomplish so many things for you, then just imagine what his life in heaven can mean. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. How is it, or when was it, that you were reconciled, or God was reconciled to you? It happened when you were an enemy. When you were contemplated in the mind of God as an enemy. That actually happened before you were born. But when it happened in the mind of God, how was he considering you? How was he seeing you? Did God say, oh, look, there's old Fred. Fred has gotten baptized and Fred has kept the sacraments and Fred has been a good boy. And so now I'm reconciled to it. No. You were seen as an enemy and were reconciled to God, not by what you did, but were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What all this is saying is the moment Jesus died on that cross, God was reconciled to his people. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of of his son, much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life, which is the logic I already presented. If his death can do so much for you, then just imagine what his life can do. All right, now, I love this verse. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement or the reconciliation. Here's what he's saying. That you were reconciled to God when you were an enemy. But you're not his enemy anymore. You're his friend. You see, you've become a believer. You've been made a believer by God's grace. So Paul says in this last verse, now that you are God's friend, you're not only reconciled, but you joy in God by whom you have now received the atonement, you see. So gospel conversion is what brings us the joy of being reconciled to God or God being reconciled to us Gospel conversion is what brings the joy of it, but the, the, the actual accomplishment of that reconciliation was done by Jesus on the cross. All right, now, uh, if anybody doubts this interpretation, uh, Paul's about to put the nails in the coffin right here. Uh, or, or as they say in the mountains, he's about to put the plug in the jug. We're going we're gonna to put the plug in the jug right now, and we're going to see that what I have said is absolutely what he meant. Wherefore, as by one man, man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death 
passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So what he's telling us here is that we bear the same kind of relationship to Christ in a spiritual sense that we have with Adam in a natural sense. That's what he's saying. That these two cases are parallel. Well, what happened to us in Adam? He sinned. We all died. Even those who had not committed the kind of sin that he committed. We did not sin after the similitude of his transgression. But we died because his transgression was imputed to us and to all his posterity. We were counted as guilty for what he did. That's what he's saying. And silly people today will say, oh, that's unfair, that's not right. My God wouldn't do that. Well, maybe your imaginary God that you put together in your mind wouldn't do that, but the God of the Bible would do it. And it's very clear that the Bible is right about this. You know, uh, your, your pursuit of some fair theory about death is crazy in and of itself. What are you going to do about babies that die? Uh, what did they do? You see, death just there's death is not something that's fair, or at least uh, certainly in not and not in our perception. Uh, now, uh, anybody who will gripe about that as being unfair better be very careful, because you save by the same way. You see, you save by the same way. Men will be saved by Jesus' righteousness even when they have not been righteous in the similitude of His righteousness. Uh, I mean, on the best day of my life, I came nowhere near to what Jesus was and is. I have not obeyed after the similitude of Jesus' obedience. But I'm receiving the benefits of that as though I did it. You see, now are you going to gripe about this divine plan uh, after considering this? Uh, Now, we all died in Adam without our cooperation and without our consent. Have you ever read a verse in the Bible that said that uh, it's all up to you whether you're going to die in Adam, you see. 
uh, whether you're going to die bodily, that you've got to make the choice. Well, you know that's not in the Bible. We would have made the choice already, wouldn't we? The, the consequences of what he did are upon us without our consent and without our cooperation. The case in Christ is analogous. His blessings come upon us without our consent and without our cooperation. And uh, that's the way it would have to be because the Bible said when we sinned in Adam, we died. So a dead man can't consent or cooperate with anything, can he? People sin, of course, because they choose to sin. But the reason they choose to sin is that when Adam died, they acquired a corrupt nature to sin. People repent and believe and obey because they choose to do that. But they choose to do that because they've acquired a righteous nature through Jesus Christ that so moves them, you see. And uh, these natures are things that they did not acquire through their cooperation or consent. It was brought upon them, and in the case of our nature to choose for repentance, obedience, belief, this was bought for us by Jesus Christ and brought upon us by the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin... So that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And uh, usually there's a note on that uh, last phrase saying, In whom all have sinned, all sinned in Adam. But thank God for the final verses of the chapter. But not as the offense, so is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense... Death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And by all men here, he means all men in their respective posterities. Now let's, just, let's suppose that you're going to say all men there means uh, all the human race without exception. Then you've just destroyed everything he just told you. Because he didn't tell you that there is some kind of free offer that's made to all men. That wasn't done with Adam. You see... But he's telling you that Adam's posterity acquired his corruption without their cooperation or consent. And Christ's posterity received his righteousness without their cooperation or 
consent. They repent, they believe, they obey because Christ died for them. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Uh, Not that God gave the law to make men bigger sinners, but God gave the law to show that men are sinners. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What What a beautiful statement. Where sin abounded, grace did much more about. Uh, grace did not just negate it or offset it. Grace just blew it away. Blew it away. Uh, exploded it. That's why we're not only absolved, but we're headed for heaven. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is it that God would do all these good things? He would do them to glorify His Son. And I hope that you're ready to do the same. Now, if you've not been united with the church or baptized in the name of Jesus, you step forward while Brother John leads us.